listening to The Currency Welcome. I'm your host, Mike Gaston. I'm a brand and marketing strategist, and this podcast is all about the power of private industry and the creativity of human beings. Uh, today, we're going to be talking to guest William Sachidi. He is an entrepreneur and the founder of the Academy of Robotics based in the United Kingdom. Welcome to the show, William. I'm glad to have you here today. Thank you very much. It is a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm so glad that you're willing to take the time. You know, I uh, the, and the, I think the way that we connected uh, last year, I did this video as the Cybertruck came out. I just did a little video on the um, the marketing side of the of the of the release that I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, that got a little bit of play, um, and then it got published to a couple different platforms. Interestingly, you are in the uh, electric vehicle space, although you're doing something even more interesting because there's some AI and robotics involved. And I believe that maybe with that video got us connected. And I was just fascinated by this project that you're doing through the Academy of Robotics. Uh, it's called Cargo. Do you mind sharing with people a little bit about what this project is and um, and where you're at in the stage of the uh, development? Yeah, sure. Firstly, um fascinating video that was the one you did on the brand strategy around Tesla. And yes, it did get a lot of attention and that's how I found you. Um, what resonated was what you described as the sort of branding journey Tesla seems to be on. Echoed what we had been doing for the last couple of years. It was as if you were reading a sort of manual as to where we've been and where we're going and why we're doing the things we're doing. And the similarity in what you're speaking about and what we do is that we have designed and built a self-driving car which is designed to autonomously deliver packages. So the idea is that if a user buys something online, we have one of our cars deliver it to your house, preferably in less than 30 minutes. And the sort of big thing that stands out is our car does not look like a normal car. It looks like a spaceship that's about to take off. It really does. Yeah, yeah. So I want to get a little bit into your background. I think this cargo, and we're going to unpack cargo a little bit. I'm fascinated by what you're doing and have some questions around the business model and some of the challenges that you might have and, and where you want to take this. But before we get into that, you know, I, I kind of scanned your, your CV. Your, in America, we call it a resume. And um, I'm just stunned by uh, your life. So you were born in Harare, Zimbabwe. Yes, that's uh, correct. You left there at the age of 17, went to England, uh, the UK. Uh, you founded a company uh, very young. You were on Dragon's Den, which is similar to the United States version, which would be, uh, which would be the Shark Tank. I mean, you, just, you seem like a serial entrepreneur. What what gets you out of bed every morning? Um, yeah, so I think um, my entrepreneur journey started when I was in Southern Africa, where I think what happened is I was good with computers from a young age. And I remember I used to fix a lot of computers for my dad's friends. When, I, when I'm talking about computers, these were what we call 286s and 386s, sort of MS-DOS. Oh, yeah, the old yeah, school. Old school MS-DOS and Windows 3.1 as an operating system. So a lot of code typing. And I used to make decent money doing this. And then this one day, I remember for school, we were sent on this work experience sort of thing where all the classmates went and did some something not, I don't know, it's, it's an okay task. I think it was merchandising for some supermarket or something, like restocking shelves just to see what working was like. And I was so excited. I'd done a full day's work and I couldn't wait to get paid. 
And I will never forget when, after I got up first thing in the morning, full day's work, we got paid what we were due at the end of the day. And I swear it was less than I would make in doing five or ten minutes of computing. And I knew from that day <laughs> forth that I, I don't think I can actually work at nine to five, or it's going to be very hard if if I have to put so much effort so proudly um, and I could do something else, which is perhaps, I'd call it working smarter, or do something else for myself and make more. And I think that's where entrepreneurs curse hit me. That's where the light bulb went off. What what kind of household did you grow up in? Like, what kind of work did your father do? So, so I grew up in a very contrasting family. So my family maternally and some paternally did really well. Um, I'm talking, we had housemaids at home and gardeners and I had a driver who used to drive me around. But then other side of the family, um, where we'd go sometimes for holiday, there was no running water, living in mud huts, um, and we have to wake up in the morning and go herd the cattle with the other kids that live in that area. So it kind of gave me an appreciation for what what the real world is like. It was sort of half and half. Um, and I was educated at a British school um, in Zimbabwe. Um, so, yeah, so growing up was kind of the best of both worlds, which gave me a unique perspective mm. on a lot of things. I think that contrast is pretty common or typical, I should say. I've lived in Cape Town for a while in South Africa, just a little south of Harare. And um, I was struck as an American living there. You know, in, in, the, in the United States, there's a lot of, and I would imagine the UK and Europe as well, there are a lot of graduations of economic ability. Yeah. What I found in Southern Africa was you either really had a lot or you had nothing. There wasn't a lot of in Exactly. And that contrast was really stark. It was just striking. Uh, you couldn't escape it. You know, in the U.S., you can live in a neighborhood and not really have to see how other people live. You can live pretty insular. But I found in Southern Africa, you can't do that. And it just, I think, helps you understand sure. the human plight. Yeah, sure. Because yeah. I think our, our, my Western friends, um, you know, with all due respect, um, they, they kind of live in a bubble of what the world really is. And when you try to explain sure. what it's yeah. like other sides of the world, it, it's, they find it really hard to conceptualize it because it's just out of reality. Not their fault. It's just how the world is, unfortunately. So what, what brought you to the UK at the age of 17? I mean, that's pretty young. Did you just go off to university or what, what, close uh, enough. what so, brought you to the to It's Europe? close enough. So in Southern Africa, there's this thing where, or in Zimbabwe at least, where when kids go through what we call O-levels or... GCSEs, the sort of exams you write at about 16. I'm not sure what you call them in the States. Um, when you've done that, you're kind of considered an adult and you either have to go do your own thing or go to university. Now, I didn't do greatly in school, so my parents thought it's best I go do my own thing. And they gave me £300 and put <laughs> me on a flight and off you go to England. And that was it. And my Tight parents wow. wanted their three hundred pounds back as well, um, so yeah, I had to give it back. So I moved to England, and by day two, I was already working some crappy job in a cinema, I think, and then in a nightclub. And a week later, I think I'd sent some of their money back and was staying on a person I met in the bar's couch, and did that first, and then started working. Um, in selling windows and doors, literally double glazing, selling that over the phone. Little did I know that this is um, wow. sort of crash course training on rejection and no's until I got headhunted to go be a trainee stockbroker. 
um, because of the experience of having convinced people to, to buy Windows and doors over the phone. And then I got my first proper job, which was a city job. Um, and it was, yeah, it was fascinating understanding the sorts of money these people were talking and the, the just, I understood money then. Sure. Yeah, I'm, I uh, am not surprised by a couple of things that I should just say, like the entrepreneur is telling me, ah, I didn't do so well in school when I was younger. <laughs> I find often entrepreneurs, you know, their, their rank ordering of priorities, usually, you know, like primary and secondary education yeah. kind of falls low in that list. They're often very bright. I mean, these are smart, intelligent people, but just to sit in a classroom doesn't seem to do it for them. For and sure. then the fact that you get off uh, the figurative boat, I'm, not, I'm assuming you flew to the, to, uh, yes, the yes. UK, but you get off the boat as it were. And by the next day, you've got a job or two or three jobs and you're hustling. Exactly, I, just, yeah. I love that drive. It's amazing. You know, a lot of folks don't realize it's just how much your drive matters. It's, uh, no, it's for it, sure. you have to kind of make your own magic at times. Not always. Sometimes we just get lucky. But um, no, absolutely. Um, you adapt, right? Um, the, the way I look at it is my tears won't add value. My being upset about it won't add value. or My not doing anything won't add value. So if if the world's being not very nice, just adapt and move on because it's not going to sure. the train's not going to stop for anybody. Yeah. So from there, it looks like you created a couple companies. You, you went on to Dragon's Den to pitch an idea. They didn't necessarily buy in, but you worked on a certain company and then eventually closed that down. But you did have a startup that that hit that that was acquired, and this is the um, my city value. So actually, let's go back a bit. So my first startup was. Um, this was roundabout when Google was just starting to be a thing. So I devised a way for small and medium businesses to easily be able to register a domain online, um, as well as have an instant website they could build by entering a, a few details, kind of like a web builder with, um, wizard. And so I started this. It was called Wanted to Registration. And before long, I convinced all my friends to be knocking on doors um, to sell these websites to small to medium businesses. Several th thousand clients later, um, someone actually bought that company. Um, and what was great was it was, a, it was actually a multi-million pound deal. But what happened is um, I was 19 years old at the time and they paid a decent deposit and they were supposed to pay monthly payments for what they called an earnout. Um, but they decided to just not pay those monthly payments and that was it. There was nothing I could do. And that's just that's just how that happened. It was a crash course in getting eaten by sharks and knowing the law. Um, but I didn't care too much because I didn't value money that much at that age. Um, that's tough. So that's a that's a hard way to learn. And, and you yeah. you could have taken them to court, but you'd have to have your own deep pockets to fight them and win. And at the end of the day, you know, there's no guarantee. Oh, right. so, I mean, ultimately, they just say, well, we're not going to pay you. Why don't you do something? They're being a bully. Why don't you do something about Precisely. it? Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah, okay. And then not long after, I did the one that I took to Dragon's Den or what um, Americans would call Shark Tank. And it was right. a, a quite a unique idea, actually. It was um, creating digital advertising on outdoor bins. So, you know, the bins you throw rubbish on the street. So we yep. made these absolutely stunning bins that looked like the Ferrari of bins, but they would light up and they were solar powered. Why we're putting ads on these beautiful bins is because in central London, you're not allowed to have any outdoor advertising. The city guards its, its, its heritage jealously in terms of clutter and advertising. 
However, there's an exemption in planning law in central London, which is that you can put outdoor advertising on an object of dual function, such as a bin. So essentially, I had the most unique outdoor advertising because I was the only one who could put outdoor advertising in central London at the time. Um, so a big Italian company thought this was a good idea, and I ended up licensing this, licensing this to about 11 cities before I sold the final license a few years later. Oh, okay, that's excellent. So I was under the impression that the company went for a little while, but you just wound it down. I didn't realize that you successfully sold the license. That's fantastic. Oh, yeah, I sold 11 different licenses, yeah. Um, one, one was to a to an uh, Italian corporation called Dida, and they make all those photo, you know, the photo, the passport photos, the autonomous fast passport photo machines. That they, that's what they specialize okay. in. Nice. Then, then I went on to the one called My City Venue, which was a sort of digital experiences and things to do search engine. And the problem we were trying to solve was um, if you want to go out to any city now, there's a big difference in London at least between going to a bar today and going to a bar tomorrow. Because the same bar slash club could be a rock night today a gay club tomorrow, a trance night on a Friday, and a family night on a weekend. So if you go to the big sort of guide-like uh, websites, they'll just list the venue, but they don't tell you what's actually happening inside. So I and a few people went through the task of literally figuring out what was happening in these venues, and then made a very clever search engine that would find what you're looking for based on the what your actual preference is, as opposed to go to this venue and it's a lottery. So this grew to be quite popular and we had about maybe 1.6 million users before the company was acquired by a holiday company in the UK. Now, what many people don't know is I actually did a, a second acquisition of the same company um, to one of the bigger taxi companies, which I can't name. Um, and we supplied them for all the data for where people were and where they were going to be. Um, so I had a double exit. Um, that's with that company. Fantastic. Yeah, that's then, um, fantastic. Yeah, that's you. great. And it's the insight there too being, you know, a lot of folks think of, well, we've got this platform, we're selling the platform, but obviously you realize there was value in the data. And then, and Absolutely. now we all kind of know that story, but, you know, uh, back in 2013, we weren't really yes, thinking exactly. those Yes, exactly. It's very new. People didn't quite get it. Yeah. So, yeah. so after that, then I was then faced with a predicament, which was, um, I knew I could do pretty much anything, but I felt the world doesn't need a faster way to book a restaurant. Um, no, no disrespect to anyone in the app, app restaurant booking business. Um, but I thought I've done three slash three startups or four acquisitions and I need to do something with scale and something with impact and something which will have value with time. Then I realized driverless cars or automating something like cars was going to be the next big thing. But I didn't, I knew I didn't have the right geek credentials to be able to do this. So I actually went back to university or rather university for the first time. And I studied artificial intelligence and robotics. Um, this is after my company got acquired, became a student and I was a mature student there. And there I found a team of very smart people, a professor and a bunch of PhD postgrads. And we together started the company I have now called the Academy of Robotics, which builds our spectacular spaceship of a car called Cargo. 
So you discovered this team, uh, you, you started studying things like um, artificial intelligence, and you started to conceptualize how this driverless car future could become a reality Ab- absolutely. and founded a company um, around it. Yeah, absolutely. So I, it was clear it was going to be the next thing. And it was clear it would be the next thing in about maybe three years, because there's Moore's Law you can think about, right, which helps you. Um, for the benefit of your listeners that don't know Moore's Law, Moore's Law is this sort of um, fundamental truth that's been going for quite a long time, that every sort of 18 months, the amount of computing power pretty much doubles out there um, and price halves. So this is because we can double the number of transistors we can put on any computer chips. They get faster and faster. So the math simply suggested that in three years' time, you'll be able to process enough data to have a car drive itself. I knew it wasn't possible at the time with the hardware at the time, but it was possible with the software. And the reason why nobody had done it is simply because the hardware had to catch up. So I thought, if I'm in this for the long run, if my team and I start now and assume we'll have the processing power at the time, um, when everybody else realizes, oh, we could do this now, um, that would likely be our exit that would have solved enough of the problem that someone with a billion dollar budget can take over. Um, mm. And that's how the company was born, just by that's making fantastic. a predictive model that it likely would work in three years' time. So what, what drew you to package delivery? Because the Cargo project is yeah. really focused on delivering packages. And, and I understand that the technology probably can scale or be applied to other um, vehicle and transportation challenges. But what made you start with that? Why not just so, get into the driverless automobile? You know, why not try to be the next Elon Musk and go uh, you know, with your own car company? For sure. So, so um, there are many, many reasons um, why, but let's, 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 I'll start with a few from the very beginning. The reason why I didn't go to a car that people will carry people is, number one, packages are less risk. Um, but it wasn't necessarily about the risk. It was more that a car company like Google, Tesla, Uber, they have billion-dollar budgets, and I could never compete with that. Um, all the car companies, like um, all the Fords of the world and the GMs of the world, what they tend to do is they find a startup not dissimilar to us who has the tech, and then they acquire them. That's how they get into the, the industry, because self-driving cars is a tech play. Now, when it comes to the other multi-billion pound corporations, logistics, they are very savvy, but not savvy enough to hire a team of PhDs in computer science who can build them a self-driving car to automate delivery. So it's a product they need, but they're not going to make it. So it takes a team like us to be able to make to make it and then sell it to them later. So tech companies like Google do their own thing. Big car companies will acquire a tech startup, which is well-funded to do this big logistics companies and all these companies and industrial machines, um, who are they going to acquire? And that was our sort of go-to-market strategy that we would make an ideal partner with one of these big companies. And true to that, um, our first sort of major trial partner is a company called Vinci Group or a subsidiary of a company called Vinci Group, which is one of the biggest contractors in the world. And they're very interested in automating their sort of uh, industrial machines that, that do repetitive tasks. And the last main reason is this. Our cars do the same route over and over because logistics is the same route over and over. It turns out that the logistics companies are very good at getting a package to specifically your local 
depot or your local um, laundry shop for next to nothing. However, when that package gets from that local laundry shop to your house, the cost goes the cost goes up exponentially. So there's there's a real problem logistics to be able to to have someone be able to autonomously get the package to your house, and that's what we're trying to solve. So you talk about uh, you know we had a pre-call discussion about it a few weeks ago. You talk about the the problem or the challenge of the last mile, and that's and that's what you're referring to right now. Is that yes, precisely. Yes. Yeah. So, so the last mile problem is basically that you could have anything sent from China even to your local depot, and the cost of doing that is always going to be pretty much pennies or under a dollar or cents rather under a dollar. But then. The big cost is getting it from that local depot to your house because now you're paying a person's minimum wage. So the human cost accounts for up to 80% of package delivery in general, mm. uh, that last mile sure. package delivery. And what many people don't know is it's, it's up to a trillion dollar problem. Um, in Europe, it's a $200 billion problem, $200 billion wow. pound problem. Uh, so it's a very big problem. Just think the scale of companies like Amazon, Alibaba, Walmart, or anyone who delivers all this there is a delivery fee there. Um, just to make it more real, um, if you're a user who wants to buy, let's say, a razor blade online, and the cost of that razor blade um, and maybe a loaf of bread is maybe $12, well, your delivery fee is, let's say, $6 or $7. Are you really willing to pay half the cart value to delivery? And that is where the problem is, where a lot of people do abandon their carts and they go to perhaps the big retailer whose name begins with an A who will deliver it for free because they'll happily lose 11 billion a year on delivery because to them, sure. they get the money elsewhere. So your target uh, market for these vehicles, I would assume, are logistics companies, but I would also assume companies like Amazon, you know, at least in the U.S., Amazon yeah, yeah, sure. d- uh, building its own um, delivery fleet. I, I get folks that show up to my door. They're at Amazon contractors. Yeah. And they're solely driving around delivering Amazon packages all day long. Who's Absolutely. your target market? I mean, yeah, for sure. So Amazon could be a customer. They, they certainly feel the pain of delivery cost more than anybody or their customers do. Um, so the first people who came to us were the big sort of logistics firms who deliver for companies like Amazon. Um, And if you speak with Amazon, I think Jeff Bezos famously recently said they could buy every delivery company on earth and still they don't have enough to be able to meet their demand because uh, online retail keeps growing and people want it right now. They want it sooner, faster, all the time. And so it's a problem that needs solving. And so we thought maybe that's where we can add value. So, so the big challenge uh, is, I think about this, and it's probably not the big challenge that you're wrestling with, but in my mind, as a, just a consumer, uh, you know, this vehicle shows up at my house to drop off a package that I've purchased from whatever retailer. Uh, what is? I understand what kind of automated vehicles you know look like figuratively. I understand this thing has a bunch of packages. What does the actual transaction between me? And the vehicle look like it shows up at my house with a box inside its, uh, you know, its boot or its trunk. What yeah. what happens? Now? How do I get that box? Do I have to meet it in the driveway? What does that? Yeah, very like? very good question. So, if we go back to um, a statement I said earlier that a lot of these logistics companies have mastered the ability to get the package to relatively close to your house, to, to your local depot, or to a an off, uh, we call them off license, like a laundrette, a small store. 
Um, and it's waiting there. And what they're trying to do now is then get it to your house. So what we've developed is a sort of Uber-like app that when you are home, only when you arrive home, you can then see you have a pending delivery. Then you press the button. When you press that button, it will then deliver it to you. That button simply says, deliver it to me now. So first things, we'll never miss a delivery because you've now summoned it because you're home. So the car then drives itself to your house and you can see on this app, much like an Uber, oh, it's six minutes away or maybe it's 20 minutes away because there's three other deliveries in the queue. But anyway, it's getting close. It's getting close. Now it's right outside my house and then it rings you or notifies you, starts buzzing saying, I'm outside, come get your package. So the transaction is a user does have to go outside to their front to the driveway or to the, the front road to pick it up. But we've learned through Uber or apps like Uber that consumers will happily go around the corner to pick up their Uber and they have no issues with them. And they'll happily go outside to pick up their package because they know the car's there. It's, it's, it's. The issue people have is that they receive that misdelivery card and they never knew it was there. And so we send the person to go get it, but you're guaranteed it's there because you summoned it and it told you exactly when it was going to arrive because you can see it. That's that's fantastic. Now, see, that hadn't occurred to me because in my mind, I thought, well, is there going to be some type of little uh, bin at my drive that then the thing backs up into that it's, you know, a, a proprietary bin that it backs up to and shunts the package into? Yeah. No, what no, I love about what you're telling me is, is you're you're giving me control. It could be two o'clock in the morning. And I can open that app, hit it, and there's an excitement. I can actually, that's one of the things I think the killer app for me with Uber, I mean, I know it's load sharing and all that, but like the killer app for me is you get to watch the car make its way to wherever you are. And it's kind of exciting. There's a little bit of fun watching this little thing on a screen. So you're adding an element of control and interaction and you're giving the user that. That's really fascinating. I hadn't considered that. I'm really impressed. So, So something to add there. So, in Europe, we are something we found with the European startups that they, they always have an eco play. And with ours, um, with, what, what the problem we're trying to solve is with any startup is we try to solve the biggest number felt by the highest number of people, right? And for us, it's that more than eighty percent of packages are shoebox size or smaller, and these packages are delivered in boxes. So tell me, if you have an autonomous vehicle which is able to go straight from a retailer to your house, do we still need the box? You know, that's sort of the infamous box within a box. Or Mm. can we just put it directly into the hatch so we don't need additional packaging anymore? So that's Mm. the sort of big eco play which a lot of the big retailers in Europe are very interested in that say it's a a smartphone, they can just put the smartphone into that into that hatch and send it to you without having to put a box, then a box, and then... Yeah, it already um, has its own packaging, sure. Absolutely, yeah. So th- there's that to consider, which in Europe, that's always a big thing. They, they, they love that. I don't know how, how much packaging is a problem in the States, um, but here it's a big I'm sure it's a problem. The, how much are we concerned about it is, is probably not as much as Europeans. Sure, so we do yeah. talk about it, but I think we're usually behind in those things. But um, it's certainly a, a problem. I mean, the amount of waste that we create is mind-boggling. Yeah, and, uh, yeah it, it so, is. Right? So, but what, what uh, it sounds like you're, obviously you can make that same claim, but that's not where you're laying your core 
a value proposition around no, it's not yes, the ego plays. Our core value yeah. proposition is simply um, autonomous delivery, but you, the consumer, are in command. You, consumer, the consumer, have the power to say, I want it now. And as you said, it could be at 2 a.m., it could be at 3 a.m., it doesn't matter what time. It's when you want it, um, provided you're home, which means no more missed deliveries, um, which is a sort of good value prop for consumers. My guest today is William Sachidi. He is the founder of the Academy of Robotics uh, based in the UK. And we're talking about uh, his project called Cargo. I'm going to place some links in the description below. You can check out William's company and the project itself. It's really fascinating. Some great content, fascinating videos, and it does look like a spaceship. So I'd encourage you guys to check it out. And if you want to connect with William, just look for William Sachidi. His uh, surname is spelled S-A-C-H-I-T-I. He's on all kinds of social media platforms, LinkedIn, Instagram, etc. cetera. Uh, very engaging, charming fellow. So please reach out to him, connect with him, and uh, keep in touch with what he's doing. We're going to be back in just a minute. We're going to get a little bit deeper into this discussion around cargo and some of the challenges and opportunities after this brief message. Guys, I hope you're enjoying today's show. I got to tell you, I really love putting this podcast together. There's something really special about meeting these business owners, hearing their stories, and then getting those stories out to you, the community that makes up the currency. Thank you so much for being a listener. Thank you for helping me make this podcast so successful. Now, look, if you are a business owner and you're trying to scale your business, you're trying to grow, maybe introduce new products, maybe capture new markets, or just capture more share in your existing market, I'd love for you to get in touch. I'd love to help you. You know, I'm a brand and marketing strategist. I help the owners of private businesses transform their marketing from an overhead function, something that costs them money, to a revenue generating machine, something that brings money into the business. Every dollar you spend should generate exponential return. And so I love working with folks that own businesses to help them do that transformation. If that's something you think you could use some help with, let's at least have a discussion. Get in touch. Like I said, my email address is mike at mikegaston.com. You can also go to my website, mikegaston.com. There's a contact form there, but get in touch and let's get a discussion started. Now, guys, let's get back to today's show. And we're back. My guest today is William Sachidi. He is the founder of the Academy of Robotics, a serial entrepreneur, and the driver and mind behind this autonomous uh, AI package delivery system called Cargo. Uh, it's been a great discussion so far, William. I appreciate you kind of taking us through a bit of your entrepreneurial journey. I'm very inspired by that and so impressed by what you've accomplished uh, in such a short span of time. And uh, But what I want to do is get a little deeper into the project. You know, with any startup, anything that we're kind of telling the public about, there's a narrative, there's a brand story, if you will. And uh, But I want to kind of get underneath that a little bit and just say, ask you, like, what's been one of the biggest challenges? Because I think for me and for my listenership, you know, hearing a problem and how that problem was tackled always helps uh, us to, to apply those learnings to our lives. So what's been one of the biggest challenges with the cargo project for you? So I think the biggest problem with the cargo project is, um, I think it's most founders relate to this is uh, funding. So we are a small company and in the United Kingdom, we just 
cannot or do not command the sort of um, amounts our American counterparts can raise. It is so hard to raise money here. Um, if you've got a startup, um, forget about any sort of funding from venture capital until you have revenue and revenue in the millions. Um, otherwise, it's too early for them. Um, and then from angels, the barrier is just so high. So when you're going to build a car doing or a company doing self-driving cars, um, a futuristic, futuristic concept, um, keeping in mind that most angels tend to be a bit older, um, in the UK at least, um, and it's what we call older money. Um, they don't get it, or a lot of them just don't, and it's a, a, an uphill struggle. So you first have to prove somehow that this futuristic tech is real and then try and get money from a sort of market where if if the US would normally invest 10 million in the UK, it'd be hard pushed to get half a million. So it's always been the funding is a, is a tricky hurdle to overcome. So how I solve the problem, however, is um, partnering and bartering. So, so for example, we have a factory here in the UK where we design and build these cars or, or our engineers are there. The amount I pay for that factory is actually nothing. The reason is because it hit me that there are a lot of small car manufacturer companies who might not have had the limelight for a while. And so I went and pitched to them that if they were to house us for free and let us use some of their their stuff just sitting there for free, um, we would bring a sort of modern uh, zeal with it and PR and everything that goes with it. And would rebrand their their sort of their social media stuff we're good at will in, inject a lot of that into their organization and we'll be the cool startup and we can ride the wave together and i so let me, you, do you mind if i just for for clarification i'm sorry william sure, sure. Uh, i just want to interrupt for clarification so when you talk about a lot of small car companies you're not talking about a garage like a panel beater where it's like you bring your car in for a dent and scratch. You're talking about, I think, uh, small like custom cars that would uh, – small companies that would customize cars Absolutely. or build collector models. I'm, I Just clarify a little bit what those car companies look like. Absolutely. So by a car company, there are a lot of these small car manufacturer companies where they have a small volume of car manufacture where they design and build their own, say, classic British sports cars or a, a unique type of low volume car, which is probably less than a thousand of these a year. But they have a small factory or it's considered small if you look at perhaps the German or American numbers um, done by Ford sure. or not. Okay. But these are small factories where business is going okay um, and they've been around for years. Um, it hit me that there are companies like this where we might add value to them and they might add value to us because all the stuff is sitting there. It also hit me that there's a lot of universities who have unused computing power, unused space, um, where they have labs of computers and computers, which are disused most of the time, or these really powerful sort of computer training machines or artificial intelligence training machines, which are also sitting there disused. So what I made up for by not having cash, what I, so by not having cash, I made up for it by partnering with people that were that would have the services or facilities that we needed that we would have normally paid cash for. So I essentially bartered my way into getting everything required to be able to build cars in the UK for pretty much next to nothing. I think 
famously, one of the big car companies recently, just a week ago, said that what we've done with a million dollars would take most companies two years and $20 million. So, yeah, that's to put into context how we were able to solve that problem. Partnering. That's fantastic. And I'm hearing two things in there. So one is you've identified, and this is the latter thing you spoke about, you've identified uh, unused capacity, for instance, computing power, uh, maybe some resources at universities. So there's unused capacity you're just able to access. But the thing, the, the former that you said that I think is really so smart, and that is you aligned interests. You, you actually created value for someone to partner with you. You didn't have to beg, borrow, and steal. Uh, you're saying to them, look, let's work together. I can bring something, some energy, some technology, some visibility to your operation. And then in return, you know, you can help me build this. And I think that the, the aligning of interests is something that a lot of people just don't think about, but it's such a powerful driver to get deals done. Absolutely. So just to add to that, so uh, for the last year, for example, right in the middle of central London, the most one of the most expensive parts of central London, an area called Soho, I had myself and my tech team, tech team housed there in a corporate office for absolutely free. How I did this is I found a corporation and I asked them, hey, um, well, I found one of the people in a corporation. I explained my plight that, hey, I've got a startup. It's a very cool startup, but we don't have money. But you know what we're doing? It's very cool. And you have got loads of space there. How do you feel about giving us a few desks in the corner? We'll have the, the rat's nest in the corner, so to speak. And just like that, we had free office space. We had free com- computers, compute power, internet connections, 24-hour access. And you'd be surprised what you get if you just ask. Mm, that's uh, that's a great statement right there. I think that that's uh, that's worth the, the if anyone listening, I think it's worth the hour of discussion because it's true. Sometimes you just have to ask, William. What what uh, as the founder and, and the the voice and face and and kind of chief promotion officer, if you will, not that you call yourself that, but you're out there telling the story. How much of this bootstrapping, this creative deal making, this looking for opportunities to align interests? How much of that potentially gets in the way of you trying to build the company? Like, I would imagine it takes a lot of energy to try to put these deals together as opposed to just writing a check and Um, having what you want. The one thing I've learned is that um, each entrepreneur does what they're good at, right? Um, And if you read a biography of some famous, uh, perhaps Steve Jobs or something, no one can really replicate what he did because it was... um, it was based on his unique skill set. Now, when I'm deal-making, it's because I've done the time as a serial entrepreneur. Um, and for me, it takes five minutes to convince someone to, not convince, ask someone and share the passion in what we do, that they too feel, <laughs> sure. do you know what, I will help. So for me, that's just as quick, if not quicker. Um, Fair enough. And it opens yeah. doors. <laughs> Rome wasn't built in a day and not by one person, you see. And for us, we, partnering works for me. So, yes, for some entrepreneurs, it might not be the best strategy because you might spend all your time trying to get stuff that you can't get. But as I said, I've, I've done the time. I've exited startups. And so if I sent an email, mine's, mine often tend to get replied pretty quickly because they can see it's not another. I've just left university and I'm starting my first startup and I have no idea what I'm doing. Um so I suppose there's that going for me. 
I don't know if that okay. answers the question. So, so the no, I think that's fantastic. I mean, essentially, you're saying, look, I'm this is a skill set of mine. I'm really good. I mean, you're, I know you're humble, so you're not yeah. bragging, but I'm really good at getting these things done quickly. So that's not it's not taking from exactly. other activities that a founder uh, of a startup might be focused on. Exactly, and and really, that's a fantastic skill. You're able to make that money, those British pounds, those U.S. dollars go a lot further. Uh, that's one of the things, I mean, the burn rate often in a startup is what kills it. You're so busy just trying to find funding, you can't build a project. So I guess a question I have around that is, is there a certain um, tipping point where you say, look, we've gotten to a certain size or phase gate, we've passed a certain uh, phase where uh, investors are willing to put more into the company? And if that's the case, how close are you to seeing uh, maybe more injection? Do you feel like you're close to, to, to having more resources to work with? I think we are finally there now, um, as we speak. Um, we're, we've been working on this for a while, and we launched our first ever sort of working car, which looks like a spaceship, a few months ago at a very popular car event to 80,000 people in the UK called the Goodwood Festival of Speed. Um, and the next step after the, our launch is that we now need to build simply more of these cars. So because we have a product of some description, people can see it, it is there. It's a lot easier to raise money. And that, that I suppose, was one of our problems before, that we were not only pitching an impossible technology, so it seemed three years ago, but we were also pitching a car design which was unlike anyone's ever seen, and people just didn't believe it. Um, but now that we've got to the point where we do have a minimum viable product, which we're hoping to take to production, um, people take it a lot more seriously and it is easier to get across the finish line. So right now, mm. we've opened a funding round where we are looking for investors to invest in us to into what we call our pre-series A round. Um, and it's going pretty well. It's going pretty well because they can now see where we're going. There's all this stuff going with companies like Tesla where they can see electric cars are a thing. Autonomy is a thing. It's real. Um, so, yeah, we, you get to that point eventually, and I feel we're there now. And in conversations are going really well. Um, the trick we have to do is make sure we make the right, we take the right money because that is as important, which money you take as to which money you don't take. Um just to give you a sort of mini example, uh, two companies, one might one will write us a two and a half million pound check instantly um, and they can close this off in four weeks. The other is going to take three months um, and they're only going to give us a million. Um, however, the one that takes the three months will give us a million. They already have all the manufacturer facility, an entire patent department, marketing department, um, which means had I taken the more money, I would have spent the money on what the lower check would have given me anyway. So the smaller check sure. is actually uh, solves a bigger problem or give you more runway. So that's what I mean by taking the right money. Um, as an, no, as it makes to. sense. I, you know, if we go back to your Dragon's Den uh, roots, and I think of Shark Tank here in the U.S., you know, often the person pitching, they might get, uh, I say often, but if they get more than one offer, they don't often go with just the highest offer. They're thinking about which dragon or which shark brings more to the table, not just the money, but connections, understanding that helps me win. Absolutely. And that's essentially what I hear you saying. It's you're looking for the right kind of money because it's not just the money. It's they're invest. They're a partner. Absolutely. Because um, in our space, um, 
we can't afford to make mistakes because it's very expensive for us to make mistakes. So everything we do right from our code, our code we put in our cars to our business decisions, they have to be double, triple checked that this is exactly what we want to do. Um, sure. And there's actually something I wanted to comment on, which is fascinating. Um, I think the biggest difference that growing up in Africa gave me as opposed to growing up in Europe is in Silicon Valley, there's this sort of um, move fast and break things philosophy, right? But if you... Yeah, yeah, fail fast. Fail fast, (laughs) fail, fail, fail. But if you grow up in, let's say, Africa, you you kind of don't have the luxury to fail because there isn't a sort of welfare system or benefit system that's going to look after you. There isn't a lot more on the line. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) there isn't the bank of mom and dad who will bail you out. If you make a mistake, that's it. So you have to be so sure of everything you have to do, double check, triple check. Um, and I'm not saying the Silicon Valley way is wrong. It's, it, it's right, it works. But then there's, I'm suggesting that there is another way, actually, which is if you check and double check and then run a test and test again and test again, um, that works really well. Um, my, my sort of evidence to this is I've had three companies and four acquisitions um, using this method that I can't afford to make a mistake. I can't afford to make a mistake. Um, So so it works to some extent, I'd say. Well, I think I'm just going to infer this. I mean, your parents put you on an airplane with 300 pounds in your pocket, sent you to England and uh, and then said, by the way, we we want that money back. So, I mean, you you probably came in with a, a lens or a mindset paradigm I can't fail. Absolutely. Not just because I'll be hungry. I don't want to bring shame to my parents. Yeah. I want to prove to the world that I'm, you know, I've got what it takes. Uh, there, I mean, there's all this pressure. Yeah. You know, and I think that the fail fast, I'm so glad you brought that up. I mean, there, we kind of treat these things as immutable laws, like, you know, like uh, Sir Isaac Newton discovered fail fast. Yeah. And, and this, this is just the way the universe works. This only works in certain environments, cultures, economies. Absolutely. You can fail fast. If, like you said, there's a safety net, I mean, it's so easy to fail and just move on with your life. And and the other thing I'm thinking about, the technology that you're uh, bringing into the public space potentially could be very destructive and dangerous if it doesn't work right. You could kill people. Exactly. High liability. So you can't afford to have that let's just fail fast attitude as you're, as you're slinging software and putting one of these little guys on the road to buzz around. Absolutely. Yeah, the risk profile is so high, right? We can't fail because there's people's lives at stake. And so this is why we have to have safety layers within safety layers because there is no margin for error. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, so it's, I'm just suggesting there is another way to do it and not the preset laws that, that can then get propagated by all sure. the cool tech blogs and whatnot. Yeah. Oh, they become they become received wisdom there, but they're not always true. I mean, so they're true in some ways, and and I'm not hearing you being didactic, saying it's got to be this way or that way. Uh, I'm sure there's a hybrid approach. Yeah. It's like, well, in some instances, a fail fast attitude is great. Maybe you're at the prototype or just conceptual stage, a designer. Yeah, it's great to work through a lot of different options quickly. You want to get there quickly. Sure. Uh, but when you're going to put a put something like this on the streets, or we're going to make a big commitment, uh, fail fast is probably reckless. It, at it that would stage. be very reckless. Yes, agreed. Yeah, William, what um, are you most proud of so far to date? I mean, Cargo, you've been working on this for uh, just a little while, not too long, just a couple of years. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that's correct. Um, so yeah. the thing I'm most what, proud. What are you most proud of in the last two? In the last yeah, two, sorry, well, go ahead. It's, it's actually for the longest time. It was a sort of side project I had in when I was in university. 
Um, so when I was in university, I had a very unique problem, not a unique, very common problem for most students, that you'll have to to try find a book in the library was really hard. So you'd have to go to a computer, then search for the book on a computer, then it spews out an eight-digit code. Then you go to a, sort of the library um, wall where there's a map, and then you try to figure out what floor and what row slash that that that. that sort of digits code leads to. Then you go there, then you've got another 15 minutes of just trying to find a single book. And the, the funny thing is, if you asked a librarian to try to find you a book, they'll actually go through the same process. It might take them 15 minutes too. So I thought there must be a way to automate this. So I then designed a robot, which in its brain had widened the locations of every book in the library, all several million of them. So you as a user, just like this is before Alexa, just like you'd go to Alexa and say, Alexa, tell me what the weather is. You could say, uh, robot, tell me where the book Foundation Maths by Anthony Croft is. And the robot will be able to, yeah, sure, there's three copies in aisle number four. Let me take you there and just follow the robot. And for me, I love that so much because it was so complicated yet so simple that that was my sort of most proud use of technology, making a multi-step complicated process into something so simple. Um, and yeah, I was actually more proud of that than cargo because I didn't invent driverless cars per se. Um, it's just more my my team's implementation is unique. Um, and for the longest time, it was that. It was the the world's first artificially intelligent robot librarian invented by me. <laughs> um, and, and, and the name is Hugh. Hugh was, did you name a, it Hugh? Yeah, Hugh spelled H-U-G-H. The reason is, this is like before digital assistance. The reason why is um, the library in the university was called the Hugh Owen Library. Um, named after the patron or something who started the library. And so uh, we made a digital AI embodiment of you. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, so that, that was my proudest. Nice. Um, we worked a lot on it. didn't quite finish it off as much as I would have wanted to because I then left university and went to cargo. Um, but I left it with the students there to finish off. But it's still, um, I'd say, very, very unique. I was very proud of that. However, the thing I'm proudest of today is a recent white paper I published. So going back to me growing up in Southern Africa, there was a very unique problem I discovered in Southern Africa, which is everyone there knows that about 34 million children um, don't actually go to school. This is for many reasons. One being poverty, two being um, there's no schools in the area, many reasons. Um, The ones who do go to school often have to walk for up to two, three hours, and then school for them is sitting under a tree with a teacher teaching them whilst they're under a tree. And the ones who do go to school have an added potential problem. Often they get there and there's no teacher. So they get to the tree and there's no teacher there because perhaps government hasn't paid the teacher. So the end result is that cumulatively over sort of 34 million kids don't go to school. So I thought... There must be a way to solve this with technology because um, education is quite important. And I don't think I'd be anywhere, I would be in England now if it wasn't for the education system I had in Zimbabwe myself. So I kind of figured out a way to potentially solve this or not solve, but play a part to help solve this. And this is why don't we, I did half my degree to, through YouTube videos, just watching stuff on YouTube. 
and it hit me, why don't we perhaps um, do video lessons that these kids can go to a school and because there's no teacher, they can just watch YouTube videos. And then I found out, or well, I knew already, that in these areas there's no such thing as an internet connection. Um, and then I thought, what if we make a little local internet connection? An internet connection where so long as you're in the vicinity of a landmark, such as a school or a tree, you can access a mini computer with an archive of an entire educational syllabus um, for kids in school. Uh, so, okay. So it kind of creates its local area network. It's not necessarily connected to the, the global internet. Exactly. But it has an archive of this information and there's a local area network. Absolutely. So I then published an 18-page white paper simply called Trees of Knowledge. And what this is, it's a method to be able to use less than $60 to create a microcomputer, which is able to be a sort of mini digital educator that we can actually install in trees. Why trees specifically is a lot of these kids are used to going to school under a tree. And so we're not changing much. It's just we're making that teacher digital. So... A lot, a lot of people are probably thinking now, yeah, but where do they get the phones? So Southern Africa, particularly Zimbabwe, has got a very unique situation, which is because of sanctions and whatnot, these countries don't have cash. They ran out of cash years ago. So they all went cashless and they use mobile phones. This dramatically increased the number of phones in all these Southern African countries where you'd find a grandpa who can barely speak English actually has a smartphone. Everyone has a smartphone because this is what you use to access currency. So people were sending all their old phones, second-hand phones. So you have abundance of these old phones that can't be used because there's no internet. So all I thought is, let's put all these old phones to use by making these mini digital stores of information, which is educational information, where anyone who's in the vicinity can connect and have access to this knowledge, hence a tree of knowledge. Do you know what's, uh, I love this, and you know what I love about it, William, uh, and, and forgive me for being so uh, uh, forward, I feel like I'm seeing a, an element or aspect of who you are. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, you're talking earlier about, hey, I only had a million pounds, but I was able to get about 10 million pounds worth of value because I was good at connecting opportunities where there was untapped uh, potential here, capacity or synergies over there. This sounds, and you and you said, hey, this is just something I do. Yeah. This trees of knowledge is the same thing. I mean, you're just looking at available resources. You're understanding the interests and the behaviors of the, the folks that are in need. And you're saying we could pull this stuff together quite quite efficiently and effectively. Absolutely. So, so, I, I, there, this, this, this is who you are. I think this is the lens that you look at the world through. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So it's one of those things where I realize that I, I won't have the time because it's it's all consuming running a self-driving delivery company in Europe uh, because I won't have the time to, to spearhead a project like the Trees of Knowledge. This is why I released it as a paper that if anyone in this space um, is interested in taking it up, I put all the schematics out there. And this means it's free of patents, free of intellectual property. Anyone can do it for a cost of literally sure. $60. Um, and it's been received very, very well. Um, some really large... In- I, could, I yeah. could see some NGOs wanting to jump on the bandwagon and maybe partner with some tech companies. Uh, we'll post a link. I'll make sure to get a link from you that we can post into the uh, show notes if people are interested in, in accessing that white paper. It's publicly available, as you said, correct? Yes, that's correct. It's, it's simply called Trees yeah. of Knowledge and it's on Medium. 
Yeah, so you could you could Google that, or oh, it's on Medium, so you could just look for the white paper on Medium. But I'll post a link to it regardless. That's to make sure people Thank can you. get at it. Yeah, I love that idea. And have you had any feedback or interest yet? Uh, from, um, yes, from it's other been overwhelming. In fact, I'm still to go back to many people. Um, so I've actually been contacted by some NGOs who were thinking of similar stuff, but sending perhaps a bus which has been converted into a school class with an internet connection. And they love this idea because it's just so low cost. We're not saying it would replace teachers and schools and it should replace schools being built. No, but it's a low cost way to, in the meantime, reach the the sort of the people who are in very remote areas and it's hard to get power. It's it's expensive. Um, So, yes, I've received a lot of interest and hopefully we should have some samples or prototypes working out there in the next month or so. Now, this is fantastic. You know, this gets right at the core of why... Uh, I like doing this podcast. Uh, you know, I think business, finance, wealth, uh, innovation sometimes gets a bad rap. I mean, people just think, oh, uh, this guy, he's a, he's an entrepreneur. He's just trying to cash out, make a billion bucks and have a big house uh, on the coast. And And really what I find when I talk to business owners and entrepreneurs, they're trying to solve the world's problems, big and small. They're trying to, yes, they're trying to create wealth for themselves, but in the process, they're trying to create wealth for others, improve lives, and make communities stronger. And I just love uh, the the intellect, the insight, and the energy that that you're bringing to your work. Not just focused on how do I make a million, uh, a billion dollars uh, with cargo launching it, maybe a acquisition or IPO, but how do I make the world a better place? And and I think that's uh, just the beauty of free markets and human creativity. William, as we're wrapping up here, I guess I just would like to ask one more question. Sure. For my listeners, if you had one piece of advice for entrepreneurs, owners, people that are looking to accomplish something, be productive with their life, uh, what's one lesson you've learned in life that you'd like to pass along to others? Um, ask. You'd be surprised. You'll often get a yes. That's fantastic, folks. My guest today is William Sachidi. He is the founder of the Academy of Robotics uh, based in the United Kingdom. He's busy working on a project called Cargo. We're going to have a link to that in the show notes as well as his project on the Trees of Knowledge project. But William, thank you so much for being a guest today. Just a fantastic discussion. Uh, the, The time went by so quickly, and I'm grateful that you joined me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Folks, again, I'll put links in the description below, but if you want to connect with William, maybe follow him on Instagram or LinkedIn, wherever your favorite platform is, just Google his name, William Sachiti. It's S-A-C-H-I-T-I. He will pop up and and you can connect with him there and kind of keep an eye on the work that he's doing. Uh, And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to this podcast. We talk to people like William all the time, just fascinating people with fascinating stories and and big hearts trying to make a difference in this world. You can find us on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, anywhere that fine podcasts are provided. As always, guys, I love you all and I'll catch you in the next episode.